Welcome to Ontario Lab, a podcast of politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff, recorded right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Kareem Atalwar Kapoor. I'm Alexi White. I'm Alvin Tejo. And I'm Sam Ed. Um, We're all here together. <laughs> that was a rough go, guys. <laughs> no, Sam, I appreciate the forced cheer you put into that because after last week, I think I need about all the positivity uh, that I can take. I feel like last week I was like, what a week it was. But I want to say that even more so this week, um, you know, from recovering from the worst U.S. presidential debate of all time. Shit show. Yeah, seemingly speeding back towards lockdown. I feel emotionally exhausted uh, and expect that that feeling is not going to slow down. So I I took the liberty um, of writing on our behalf a few assurances to the listeners um, and um, you know, you guys can tell me whether you think these are, are good or not. But I thought it would be good for us to maybe keep it fairly chill at Ontario Lab. You know, uh, we cover harrowing policy issues, but we'll try not to be at like tier nine levels of rage all the time. So I feel like, Sam, that was a great chill intro. On Just your call behalf. me Captain Chill, Captain Chill. Second, this will forever and always be a Trump-free space. The worst genre of Canadian uh, politics podcast is Canadian politics podcast talking about the American election. And we will try to make sure our coverage isn't all COVID all the time. There are other things that are happening in government that are important. We will make sure uh, to make time for those. And we will be doing that today. So I just made that up on behalf of all of us. Are we okay with those? Are there additional things you promise to our listeners? I mean, what happens if Donald Trump literally crosses the border to give us COVID? Then we have to talk about that. <laughs> Into Ontario exclusively. Yes. Now, I think his motorcade was technically hermetically sealed. So unless he like annexes Ontario into his motorcade, apparently we're, uh, we're not. But apparently inside that motorcade, his own like Walter Reed physician said that's like the most efficient COVID delivery system of all time. So as long as we're not in the motorcade with him, I think we're okay. All right, well, that was already too much Trump, guys. Breaking promises as soon as we're making them. Um, Well, we've got a great show for you today. We'll be testing Commitment 3 by starting off with a discussion of the government's rollout of the fall COVID preparedness strategy. We'll be talking about how Ontario is doing financially with the public accounts. We'll be talking about how some plan changes to social assistance uh, will impact the users of that social assistance. Um, Stick around because later in the pod, uh, Michael Liu, uh, who is a uh, Rhodes Scholar and an Oxford student uh, who... Uh, is working with a bunch of Canadian uh, medical professionals. Uh, will be joining to tell us about a paper he released for the Canadian Medical Association Journal on how the design and the leadership of the British Columbia long-term care system contributed to far fewer COVID-19 deaths than we saw here in Ontario. Uh, lots to learn there. Stick around. Really excited for that. Uh, but let's dive into COVID. Um, so by far the biggest story of the week was the government's release of the fall preparedness plan, uh, in addition of uh, an announcement of additional lockdown measures, uh, which included the announcement of appointment only testing and basically stay at ho- uh, stay in your home restrictions for Peel, Toronto, and Ottawa. So it was a big COVID week, Sam. Wondering if you can talk take us through some of the highlights. Sure, I'll try to be brief because I think probably most folks have been following this closely. Basically, we're in the second wave and it's scary. A new modeling is showing uh, cases are doubling every 10 to 12 days. And now it's across all age groups as before it was um, sort of concentrated in in the 20 to 39. Ultimately, this is going to lead to 200 to 300 ICU admissions per day if we uh, don't change um, these patterns. And then at long last, this plan came out, as you mentioned, the one that they were dripping out last week. It uh, underwhelmed most people with not much detail about 
how we would potentially get out of a second wave and no detail about how new restrictions will be um, imposed or what metrics will guide those decisions. But it did have a bunch of uh, kind of a laundry list of money and efforts to both enhance and expand testing and contact tracing, the flu immunization campaign uh, to clear health service backlogs and address surge capacity in hospitals and kind of re-announcing new support for for long-term care and uh, wage enhancements for personal support workers to try to help in recruiting and retaining frontline workers. Uh, And then, as you mentioned, on Friday, a few big announcements. So uh, a move to appointment-based testing and uh, a goal to get to 68,000 per day in testing capacity by November. Uh, We're now um, much, much less than that. And new restrictions on the max capacity in restaurants and gyms, as well as advice to restrict your contact to your own household and to pause social circles. But if you live alone, you can have con- close contact with one other household. But again, they continue to sort of fumble the communications of this because when they were pressed, so does that mean no Thanksgiving? They sort of hemmed and hawed and just didn't really answer the question. So uh, confusion continues to reign. And uh, that was the week in Ontario COVID land. A couple pieces to that that I think are, are are interesting. I think the big question on everyone's mind is, like, how did we get here? Already over the weekend, we have seen um, basically a number of hospitals move their testing to Eventbrite. And so when you go onto Eventbrite and you try to get your COVID test, it says sold out for, like, the foreseeable future. Um, and that's led to, I think, a bunch of people worried about things. And in addition, uh, Toronto Public Health announced that it would be suspending contact tracing, basically saying that the backlog was so large as to make the activity um, somewhat meaningless until they can clear that backlog. And so just, like, curious for thoughts, like, how did we how did we get here from a, a government that was doing seeming to do so well on this file to one that is now seeming to not. I think it's just such a lack of preparation and lack of foresight on this government's part who knew that a second wave was coming, who had experts and civil servants telling them, this is how much money you need to spend. This is what you need to do in order to prepare for the second wave. We knew school was going to start in September. They knew what their rollout was going to be. They knew when they would have access to flu shots. They knew that the capacity they had in hospitals and in pharmacies and testing, they knew that it had to go up and they weren't willing to spend the money in order to get us there and to get us prepared for what everybody knew was coming and that history has shown second waves are always so much worse. You know, any sort of credibility that we that this government has increased uh, by getting themselves by acting quickly at the beginning, they should lose because they have not prepared us for the second wave, which is now completely their responsibility and within their bailiwick. My other problem is the the lack of communications. I mean, Sam was talking about how they were slowly communicating individual pieces every day or every other day. I'm like, maybe we'll tell you a little bit more tomorrow if you're lucky. But it's because it's because they didn't have a plan. And currently people are confused. The Queen's Park Press Gallery is confused in terms of what the actual uh, policies and restrictions are. Um, parents are confused. Parents I'm talking to at schools are confused. They don't know what the policies and restrictions actually are right now. And you're having an open conversation between uh, medical officers of health from the city of Toronto in disagreement with the provincial officer saying this is where the restrictions should be. So nobody knows what to think. Nobody knows you know, what exactly they should be doing right now other than the panic that is settling in because it seems like the government doesn't have a real plan moving forward. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it's important for us to remember that we are 
It's been 100 years since our last pandemic and the influenza pandemic, and science and communications have come a really far away since then. So even though a second wave was predictable, it doesn't mean it was inevitable. And I feel like a broken record in saying that, but it really is true. We absolutely knew what we needed to do to maintain a low curve. And we we did not do that um, as a province, as a country. And now and now we're mystified at, at the fact that, you know, that um, cases are increasing. Today, I was on housemyflattening.ca and ICU bed capacity in the province is at 80%. And that's, we're not even at the peak of the second wave. And so this, it is absolutely concerning. And and there are some public health units that are at their max ICU capacity, bed capacity, some that are not. This is a virus, and therefore we have to, instead of the surgical approach that I think in terms of communications, the government thought was going to be an effective way of demonstrating its capacity, it's actually shown its misunderstanding of the pandemic and the virus writ large. And um, one thing that I remember a couple of months ago before the COVID app came out or the exposure app came out, there was a lot of debate around, do we need the app? Is the app going to protect our privacy enough? What will the role of contact tracers be? And there was a false dichotomy set up between uh, if we've got the app, do we actually do we actually need contact tracers? And And now again, we're seeing the outcomes of that in not investing enough in core public health principle, um, over-investing in app, which can be helpful, but because of misinformation, so many, a majority of Canadians and, and a majority of Ontarians haven't downloaded it. And so we were at this place where there is vast community transmission and no way of people knowing that that they're in vicinities where they may have been exposed. And so now we're at a place where hospitals are using portals like Eventbrite and some, you know, on Twitter are wondering whether open table would have been better because you can at least see when the next available appointment is. And like, that's where we've come now without this debate that was being had over the summer about privacy. Now we're just basically you know, shrugging and saying, well, it is what it is, go to Eventbrite without thinking not only of the privacy issues, but access and equity issues inherent in all of that. So it just drives me crazy. There's no way that that's in compliance with the Personal Health Information Protection Act, right? Like we just are <laughs> going to forget that. <laughs> I think it's, that's, a, that's a really good point, though, because this is clearly a government that is in siege mode right now. They are reacting. There was like a COVID announcement every day last week. Uh, the premier's executive director of communications was like chastising reporters for their coverage over Twitter. Uh, that is an exchange that, for your own sanity, listeners, I don't recommend checking out, but was a thing that was happening. Clearly, stress levels are high. The situation is unfolding in a way that was not planned. Is there anything they could do right now that would make things better? I mean, obviously, the right thing to do is to start preparing in the summer. Um, but curious, if the Ontario Lad Crisis Management Team was brought into uh, the Premier's office, what, 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 we, what advice we might give them? 
start by leveling with people about the actual risks that are out there and and be truthful about the steps that need to be taken now that and, and stop talking about or stop pretending that there's this dichotomy between the economy and public health like if the economy is going to suffer if we can't get this thing under control uh, and they just fundamentally continue to reject that basic principle even though they're told again and again and again and until that changes i don't think the comms is going to get any better we don't. We know what they were told. I mean, the, the, there's been a lot of reporting now on what the experts were telling them they needed to do over the summer, uh, and we know they didn't do that stuff. We don't know precisely why there was some suggestion of people throwing it back on the civil service. Um, you know, it's clearly there's not a, a lot of leadership uh, on the political side to take the steps that were necessary. And I mean, I don't even know that they would have taken the steps they took in the last few weeks if it wasn't for the large federal investment, right? Like the interesting thing about this is that the feds came to sort of help Ontario out and help all the provinces out with that big $19 billion package that they spread across all the provinces. If it wasn't for that, would the government have eventually made these investments in growing contact tracing to the insanely low 68,000 by November goal? Uh, Or would we be even worse off uh, and I don't, we're never going to know the answer to that, but it's, it's, um, it doesn't even suggest that the government has learned its lesson. It, it could simply be that they were given enough money to do this by someone else. And I mean, at this stage, if you're waiting more than 48 hours to get a testing appointment and then another 48 hours to get your results, like we effectively do not have testing capacity or tracing capacity alongside it, um, which I think like seven months in is just hard to believe i guess even setting that aside about where we go from here and like what advice like i just don't know why we can't like many other jurisdictions have done lay out at this caseload in these regions this is what will get triggered like nobody can believe nobody does believe that we're not going back to a lockdown if we're at a thousand or two thousand or three thousand cases a day like at some point something will change and for people not to be able to like predict plan especially if you're like running a business or like like just level with people, lay it out what you're thinking. And the fact that they're refusing to do that leads me to believe they do not actually know what they're going to do, which is even more worrisome. I thought it was really telling that the day the government announced there or on Friday last week, you know, basically as soon as the news about the increased restrictions from the province came out, Toronto Public Health came right out with a letter to the province that basically said, either you give us the ability to shut down restaurants or please do it for us you know like because they're, they're trying they're trying to approach the principles of treating toronto peel and ottawa slightly differently and recognizing things are worse but um it, yeah i agree unless they are willing to make fundamentally different calls here it like won't be helpful it's not just a communications problem it's a policy problem how can you tell people that it's okay for a hundred people to be in a restaurant um but only stay within your household like that that is policy that doesn't make sense. You can't communicate your way out of that. So uh, it'll be it'll continue to be a mess. We can't we can't have Thanksgiving at home, but we can go to a restaurant and all twenty five of us can be there at the same time. I know I will look forward to uh, meeting all of you and our extended families at a reservation I'm making at a banquet hall in York Region. Uh, so, but also like the words "sold out" and "healthcare system" in Canada should not be in the same sentence. Alongside, you know, private clinics providing testing if you pay for them and the cost of the test range from 50 to $250 a pop. What did Ford describe that as again? A free market society? We have a free market society. Yeah. Yeah. So like the thing is, is that like, I know that it's not lost on any of us that governing is hard. It is. You have tough choices to make. 
but you got to make choices. And right now, there's a lack of clarity around those choices that are, that are being made. And I am sure that the government knows that the people that are experiencing the negative outcomes of, of the lack of clarity continue to be those that were that have been made vulnerable already through the pandemic. So we're doubling down on these inequities uh, with no way out. All right. Well, uh, on Wednesday last week, the government announced plans to modernize Ontario Works and ODSP, uh, Ontario's uh, primary welfare uh, welfare supports for working age adults. The changes seem focused on digital delivery, reducing some of the administration in the program, uh, and of course, emphasize the always controversial enhancing access to employment and training for recipients. Uh, so Grima, in a super loud week um, in other areas, what did we learn about what the government intends to do with one of Ontario's most important social assistance programs? And what do you think it means for recipients? Yeah, so um, just uh, going back to my previous comment, it's important to focus on social assistance because uh, social assistance provides supports to those that are most vulnerable in our province. And so just to set the stage, let's go way back to last year. It feels like a decade ago. And as part of the government's plans for a return to a balanced budget, and we can discuss that later, uh, the government announced its intention to reform social assistance by making changes that would encourage people to, quote, get back to work and ultimately reduce the cost of the program by $1 billion dollars or 10% of total essay costs over one fiscal year. Thus far, many of the changes that the government has announced have been repealed, but the focus on employment and training supports are still well underway. We've covered these issues on the pod before, so we won't rehash them here. But with the pandemic, the government was forced to reckon with the administrative and operational inadequacies of social assistance. And so while Broader efforts on SA reform remain unknown. The government uh, announced last week that it plans to build a more responsive, efficient, and person-centered SA system that will get people back to work and help the economy recover from the COVID-19 crisis. There's a lot to unpack here. But in, in a nutshell, I'd say that there are four key pillars of the first first initial foray into essay reform. So that includes uh, continuing work on access, on increasing access to employment and training services through working with the Ministry of Labor, Training and Skills Development, accelerating digital delivery. So enabling people to apply for supports uh, using online portals, such as the My Benefits digital platform. Uh, centralized automate and automated delivery to centralize the intake process uh, to reduce paperwork and provide caseworkers more time to support clients through the crisis system and risk-based eligibility reviews that enable the government to sort of assess whether somebody is eligible or not eligible based off of a risk algorithm that they've got and then Based off of that, if there needs to be further auditing of the client, then they can do so. This is a very short synopsis, but I think it's important to remember that the government is signaling that it that this is an initial step towards more changes that are forthcoming. So we should stay tuned um, and listen for what more is to come. Uh, but also it's worth noting that social assistance caseloads have decreased slightly because of the SERP. 
This is important because without the CERB, social assistance caseloads would have undoubtedly increased during the pandemic. Because the CERB was so significant, it helped decrease caseloads across all social assistance systems in the country. In Ontario, Ontario Works cases decreased 240,000 cases in March to 223 cases in August. And in ODSP, the cases decreased slightly from 381,000 cases to 379,000 cases. So I'll leave it at that. So yeah, a lot, a lot to unpack. The the first thing that I sort of thought when I read was it was unclear to me how any of this might improve or not improve the experience of using the system for users. Um, as you mentioned, Grima, there is a we are in a point in time right now where because CERB is so significant and more generous in many cases than the Ontario systems, it's taken some of the pressure off of our and. Uh, so I can see why they would actually want to use this time for a, you know, a, maybe a system redesign of ODSP. But if I'm an actual recipient, you know, a digital delivery system, a risk-based assessment, is any of this interesting to me or is it just kind of cleaning things up behind the scenes? I think, you know, when the pandemic first hit, um, a lot of people that tried to contact their caseworkers to get the $100 boost that they could have gotten from Ontario Works, couldn't actually reach their caseworkers. Um, And this is because caseworkers had, some of them were required to work from home. Some of them were required to come into the office, but priority might've been given to people that are, that are homeless or or have ha- or face housing insecurity and so i think at the face of it many of these things have been discussed by government as reforms to social assistance for years i mean it's it, these aren't new initiatives by this government the previous government was also undertaking these these changes so i think it's about about making administration easier and uh, more streamlined. But again, in a world where we continue to push online or digital solutions, uh, we have to recognize that um, that many people that are low income actually don't have access to, dig- to devices that enable them to um, access the internet, let alone access the internet in itself. And so while community spaces like libraries or community centers that might have provided internet access uh, previously are no longer available. So for a person living in poverty that might need access to some support, having access to a streamlined online support or online process might be great. But for people that don't have access to it, there is still a huge problem. And I'm not seeing how that is being rectified. I wonder with so many people on federal assistance right now because of the pandemic, you know, how much have people who are in Ontario who are on social assistance transitioned to being supported either solely or also in conjunction with the federal programs that are out there that you know, this is like people don't care where the money comes from. People don't people just need the support that they need. Right. So at some point, they're going to have to transition back. And has the provincial government taken advantage of that time of integrating within the system or making it simpler or making it uh, more seamless for these individuals to get the support that they need? I'm hoping 
I would like to think that they're taking that time to do that. It seems like they're not, and they're still trying to find ways to cut corners. But maybe what that'll hopefully inspire in people is understanding that the system is broken and saying, listen, we had a pandemic. We, we found a way to get money to people who needed it. Um, the system we have in Ontario right now is unacceptable. Uh, you need to you know, get off your ass and do a better job so that we can continue to serve people the way they need to be served. Well, I will clarify one thing, though, that in Ontario, so every province could decide how it treats CERB for people who receive social assistance and CERB. In Ontario, the government did have the same clawback as it um, as it does as it treats employment earnings. So it clawed back your social assistance by 50 cents for every CERB, every dollar of CERB that you got. But it didn't kick people off of social assistance. So if you were an ODSP recipient who got CERB or an Ontario Works recipient who got CERB, you may no longer get uh, income support from social assistance, but you still had access to really important supports like drug benefits, um, like a special diet allowance, whatever it is. Like there's a number of different supports in social assistance that cannot be effectively replaced through CERB, which is not an experience in other provinces. So in Alberta, there's, you know, lots of people did get kicked off of, uh, get, get kicked off of social assistance. And so rapid reinstatement in Alberta is going to look different than in Ontario. So just want to point that out as a clarifying, but also demonstrative of how uh, balkanized our social assistance programming is in this country. Yeah, I I think the the questions about the pandemic are important, but to me this this is much more uh, of a next step on what is a long term transformation of social assistance, and a lot of this would be happening regardless of the pandemic. Um, so I think it's better to see it in in sort of that longer term frame. Um, the previous Liberal government brought in the uh, social assistance management system, the new SAM system, which had all kinds of implementation problems. Um, but part of the reason for that was because it enabled things uh, like this, these online um, service options that they're talking about, the accelerating digital delivery. A lot of that stuff is sort of the next phase of that implementation uh, and is where you start to see the, the big benefits of going through that huge amount of pain uh, in previous years. Um, risk-based eligibility reviews are something that was always happening. Uh, it seems like they've just expanded the use of them or improved their um, their metrics. So there's pieces here that are sort of just incremental improvement. Uh, and I think a lot of this is good stuff. Uh, it's important to, uh, to think about how we're using our caseworkers' time. And there's way too much paper pushing in the system and not enough actually supporting people. Um, but there are more fundamental challenges that still need to be addressed. I mean, caseworkers are both police and they're supposed to support people. I mean, at their very fundamental level, the same person who is helping you is also able to cut you off if they find out something about you that that is supposed to be you know uh, if they find out something they're not you know you don't want them to know about you or something like that um so there there are bigger uh fundamental changes that are needed to the system and a lot of these little tweaks are great and i read this more as the government uh backed off a lot of their changes realized politically that they weren't going to be able to take the money out of social assistance that they expected to be able to, that social assistance transformation is actually harder than they thought, uh, and that these are um, these are smaller things that uh, look like you're making progress, um, but don't really cut too much and don't cost anything. Uh, and I think that we're kind of, it seems to me like we're kind of in this holding period now in social assistance where the government doesn't know what to do with it. And so for now, they're just going to move forward with some of the the basic service delivery changes that that they've been planning for a long time. Yeah. And, and 
to to Grimm's report earlier, I think we're already underway work that was already taking place in the previous government. I think it's what will be interesting to see is where they go from here. Um, administrative requirements are or improvements are, are good to make, but we've seen this government repeatedly put sort of like administrative changes in the window and kind of big font to either obscure the fact that they are either not investing in something or, you know, seeking to make reductions in something. And so um, it's something that I think we should continue to uh, monitor uh, closely. Just a question for folks. The framing on this continues to be, though, getting people back to work. And like, just wondering from your, your perspective, like the pandemic has changed the labor market. So like, is this framing still effective? Who are they speaking to? Because somebody were to ask me, like, I would say that that I don't know that that necessarily needs to be the first principle that's driving these important reforms that I'm not sure actually do the thing that you're saying it will do. But also, what jobs are people going to go back to because we don't have lots of jobs? I think you think about this more in more detail than most of the people they're speaking to. I mean, their message is always going to be, it doesn't matter what happens, like anything could happen to the job market. And this government's message on social assistance would always be the best way to poverty is a job and we're going to get people jobs. And that's our goal. And that's just a fundamental part of their base's belief in what so, like social assistance is for, especially Ontario Works, probably ODSP too. Uh, I don't see that changing anytime. Maybe they can, uh, maybe it'll link them up with one of the many uh, job openings in Toronto restaurants as they continue to stay open for uh, the next little while. But uh, like I say that facetiously, but as a, uh, but also as a note to like this government's commitment to maintaining as much private industry as possible, um, this continues to show up elsewhere. So I think the primary audience of, of that was the minister's office. Uh, Alexi, you brought up, um, you know, uh, how much they may have intended to spend or not spend in government. And I want to turn our attention to the last topic today, which is a long-awaited fiscal update. You can be forgiven for missing last week on terror releasing the 1920 public accounts, which are the most complete record you can get on the state of the province's finance from the previous fiscal year ending March 30th. Uh, given that timeline, listeners should know that this is going to only really capture a very small amount of the early revenue and spending uh, effects of COVID-19. But it can tell you how we were doing heading into this crisis. Were we swimming in debt? Were we cruising towards balance? Uh, Alexi is going to to tell you in a segment I want to call WAP, which stands, of course, for, well, the accounts are public. And I, I, I've, I have, I have, I've put together some theme music for it. So let's, let's, let's see if this works. See what's like money printers rolling out those bills. Oh, no. yeah, no. Also, it's it's pronounced WAP. You can't say W-A-P. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's WAP? Yes. Oh, man. I also thought you were going to use the song that actually has WAP in it. That was, that was dead on arrival. What's happening what now? <laughs> I, put, I put an air horn sound in our sound bar, which I'm now realizing. Can you turn it off? <laughs> oh, I didn't realize I needed to turn it off. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's talk about the public accounts. <laughs> uh, it's the most exciting. That's right. So casting our memories back before the pandemic, um, which, as Grima said, feels like ages ago. 
there was a time when the but the deficit actually used to matter and people cared about uh, like a billion dollars here and there. So uh, let's talk about that time. And this is 2019-20, uh, which actually looking at the public accounts was a pretty uneventful year from a fiscal perspective overall. So uh, you'll remember that they tabled a 2019 budget a long time ago now. Uh, they projected $10.3 billion deficit. The actual deficit came in at $8.7 billion, so a, a good sort of the, the normal amount of improvement that every government wants to see compared to what they set for themselves. Uh, all of that difference can be explained pretty simply if you remove the billion dollars in reserve that they built into the budget. Uh, and then also lower interest on debt costs, which it seems like every single year we come in, uh, you know, 200 to $500 million lower on interest on debt um, because interest rates just aren't going up anytime soon. Uh, so together, that explains the drop uh, behind those ups and downs. There was uh, an increase in program spending of about $2 billion over budget, but there was also an increase in revenue uh, by about $2 billion over budget. So no effect on the bottom line there. I guess like the main picture is like this government's main story pre the pandemic was that it was going to rein in costs. Um, it got them almost nothing politically. I'm wondering if they managed to do anything. Like, how true is that narrative? If I'm one of the other parties, you know, and Doug Ford is going out saying, we've managed through this crisis in a fiscally transparent way. Is there anything in this year that shows that they were doing anything related to their mission? So if you look at things going back... Um, since they took power in 2018. So comparing these public accounts to the public accounts for 1819 and then the year before 1718, which was the last year that the liberals were in power, um, the government has inherited some really strong revenue growth. And of course, that's all stopped because of COVID. But just looking over that period of time, they saw a $3 billion increase in revenue in 1819. And that was after cutting cap and trade revenues. Uh, and then also pretty decent revenue growth over the last year, $2.5 billion, comparing those two public accounts. So that's a good chunk of change. Um, the reason the deficit is so high is because this government's spending has actually been growing faster than that revenue growth. Uh, so it's actually up $10 billion over the first two years of the four government, uh, which is a pretty good, pretty good percentage. Um, and part of that is that the conservatives did end up impl implementing a lot of the big budget that the liberals passed in 2018. So you remember that that budget planned another $9 billion of spending in just that year. And the PCs managed to stop some of that spending, but still ended up spending a, like $6.5 billion more that year, which is substantial. Uh, and then another $3.5 billion uh, more in programs in 1920. So the deficit last year was actually $1.3 billion higher than it had been the year before because that program spending is growing slightly faster than revenue. So I would say if you're looking at, uh, is this government actually changing the fiscal course of Ontario in a substantial way? Uh, no, um, not really. They are slowing growth in spending compared to what the Liberals had promised. Um, but uh, in terms of uh, you know a, a real change in direction the way we saw under, for example, the Mike Harris government, no, we have not seen that. Except in a few areas, right? Like I feel like health and education are soaking it up, but then in particular ministries, they're targeting cuts or, or at least slow growth. Is that a fair summary? I would say, yeah. The If you look at the public accounts numbers on sort of one layer deeper uh, on the program spending side, um, all of the money for 1819 to 1920 went into healthcare, so $2.5 billion, and then into education, $1.5 billion, more or less. Um, and the next two largest ministries actually saw decreases. So Children and Community and Social Services, which you just talked about, was down about $100 million, so not a ton, but this is a ministry that tends to grow every year because they have so much entitlement programs. So the, the government has been successful somehow uh, in basically 
preventing more people from getting onto some of these programs that um, that that uh, service them. Uh, and then even worse, post-secondary spending was down uh, by about $600 million, uh, more or less as they had predicted in the budget. So uh, if you dig into the public accounts, for example, there was a $700 million cut to OSAP. Uh, it was a $2 billion program in the public accounts in 1819. It's only a $1.3 billion program in the public accounts for 1920, which uh, is incredibly sad for access to higher education. Um, so those four areas together account for most of the spending. And um, you can see, uh, as Sam, as you said, some some areas are suffering, some areas are, are doing okay. Other than those areas, I think there's only a few things that were quite interesting. Um, production insurance claims were way up uh, in sort of the agricultural industry because of poor weather conditions, um, which I think we can probably expect to see more of as climate change continues. Uh, there are also higher than projected costs for electricity rate mitigations. We'll all remember that the government continues to invest heavily in uh, artificially lowering the rate of electricity costs, uh, which was probably smart politics, but not good policy. And the costs associated with the cancellation of the Hamilton Light Rail Transit Project, which is just another just incredibly sad, sad story. So, but I'm also seeing from these numbers that they haven't reduced spending on the overall. They're still continually to increase spending every year, even though they have that narrative of they're going to be cutting spending. Now, I don't really want them to cut spending anyway, but it's not like they're also accommodating for the growth that's necessary in all of these programs. So it seems like they're doing the worst of everything, right? Like they're not really fully funding these programs to what they need to do to in order to serve Ontarians to their best ability. And they're not really saving money on the fiscal side either, other than just sort of holding steady moving forward. I think back to the time we were in government and right before the election and thinking through what this budget would mean and contain. And the idea, the sort of theory of the political case going into the 2018 election is let's put all of our platform stuff in the budget and have it be actual on paper commitments that will be hard for the conservatives to roll back because it's if they were to win because it you know like it's money that people sort of know the details of as opposed to sort of a vague plan that uh goes away uh, one thing that I, I i was a little surprised to see was that that was in some ways effective and that you know going big in some cases meant that some of this money stayed for potentially a little bit longer than it might have otherwise. And it also made me think longingly to an alternative reality where maybe we'd started doing some of those things a couple years earlier and had those programs really, really baked in. I mean, there's a lesson I think here for progressive governments about how and when to move on on big things. And, um, you know, if I looked at the Affordable Care Act in the States, it has mass public support now, but that took about a decade to come into place. And so if I'm looking, if I'm in the Trudeau government right now, and I'm promising a bunch of things, I'm maybe starting to take a look at some of the implementation calendars and thinking how soon can we get those details out there to people um, so that these changes that we want to make stand more of the test of time, even though we know that, you know, a conservative government might come in and roll back some of them. Even though you have a provincial government or all provincial governments across Canada are essentially using the federal government to pay for a number of the things that they need to do to get through COVID while trying to keep their deficits artificially low, right? I mean, they're going to try to take credit for the fact that they haven't spent money on this in the next election that's coming down the line to say, hey, we managed to not go into as much debt as the federal government, even though we keep putting our hand out asking for more money. I think like my biggest reflection, I think Alexi, you alluded to it on our last episode, is just like how much the policy window has shifted, like just reminding 
about how much we sweated these, you know, uh, degrees of difference, like in many ways, to your point, the, the Ford government in its second year governed in some ways like a liberal government in austerity mode, right, where you kind of fund the growth you have to to keep the services going, but you're not like dramatically expanding the you know yeah. footprint of the state, yeah. um, if you will. We're jet world is just gone, and we're just like in this whole new pandemic world now, where and the road back to it, and so. Anyway, like it's just it's kind of interesting and fun to look back. And I, I would just echo Chris's comment that some of the investments that we made in education around guidance counselors and um, mental health and a whole bunch of things that we did as platform commitments, to your point, stayed and got baked into, you know, these this billion plus that are is increasing in education in ways that I don't think they had to do. And so like um Anyway, it's just an interesting reflection on how this government is governing. But I think to Alvin's point, it's all kind of, you know, the ancient past now because we're in a whole new world. Well, that was a fiscal update. It sounds kind of like a horror movie at first. That's <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll find some new uh, theme music for the next fiscal update, but that's probably a good place to leave it today. Hey everyone, it's Alvin. Before we send you off to hear Sam's interview with Michael Liu about long-term care, I want to take a minute to thank all of you for listening. We're always working to reach even more people. So if you have some time, give us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Posting about the pod on Facebook, Twitter, or other social media helps spread the word. If you can, think about becoming a Patreon supporter. Go to patreon.com slash OntarioLoud or visit OntarioLoud.ca and hit the Patreon link. That's it. Sam, take it away. Welcome back to Ontario Loud. So I think a lot of us remember uh, in spring 2020, the long-term care sector was hit uh, perhaps the hardest by COVID-19. And we all remember the military had to be called in to bolster the support uh, in Ontario's long-term care homes. Uh, and as of the end of last week, there are still 44 long-term care homes with an active outbreak. And, outbreak, and so we had no uh, by no means out of the woods yet. Um, however, too often, I think the situation in long-term care is treated uh, by many as somehow inevitable, these congregated care settings, you know, older, more vulnerable demographics. Um, and so we thought we would bring in an expert uh, to talk us through a recent study that they uh, completed comparing Ontario's uh, long-term care response to British Columbia's. Um, so I'm pleased to welcome uh, to the show Michael Liu. Michael is a Rhodes Scholar studying at Oxford for evidence-based social intervention and policy evaluation. He holds a Bachelor in Human Development and Regenerative Biology, Global Health and Health Policy from Harvard College. After Oxford, Michael is going to be returning to Harvard Medical School to complete his medical training. Michael, welcome to Ontario Lab. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be with you. So you recently helped co-author a paper that in the Canadian Medical Association Journal highlighting that many more residents have died per capita from uh, COVID-19 in Ontario than uh, was the case in British Columbia. So can you, I guess, just walk us through your study? What were the sort of the top reasons why you found this to be the case? We're not the first to report on these differences, and there's been a great deal of speculation on potential reasons from academics and advocates and the general population. Um, there were thoughts that the BC long-term care system might have been better prepared than Ontario in coping with the pandemic before COVID-19, and that BC might have responded more favorably than Ontario to the pandemic after the fact. 
And so we basically put together a team of experts in long-term care and health policy in Ontario and BC and tried to organ- uh, analyze the uh, problem systematically. And what we found was that there's really no single reason. Uh, and there was a number of areas where BC was better prepared than Ontario for a pandemic, and a number of areas where BC responded faster and more decisively than Ontario did. And so all of these probably contributed toward the disparities that we're sort of observing. First, there's, there was the overall system in BC had some significant advantages even before the pandemic. So, for example, homes uh, had far fewer shared rooms in BC. And we know from past research that private rooms tend to reduce the transmission of infectious diseases like COVID-19. Uh, we also know that a greater proportion of long-term care homes in BC were nonprofit, and we know that on average, the outcome of residents in long-term care homes tend to be better for residents in nonprofit compared to for-profit homes. And we also found that folks in leadership in BC generally responded faster and more decisively than those in Ontario. As I'm sure many of your listeners uh, know, the BC provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, has won international acclaim for her stellar communication and leadership uh, in BC. And moreover, her along with elected officials, communicated with outstanding clarity, compassion, and transparency, which I think ultimately won over the support and the buy-in of the province. And these same leaders were much faster than Ontario when it came to implementing some important policy changes. So some of these include orders and supports for staff to work at a single site long-term care home. And there's now a lot of evidence showing that staff are the main vectors of transmitting the virus across homes. They were much faster in recommending universal masking policies in long-term care homes and sending these so-called SWAT teams of public health professionals, infection control and prevention staff uh, to support long-term care homes and outbreaks. These things ultimately did happen in Ontario, but sometimes two to three weeks later. And we know that in the case of uh, infectious diseases, even a few days matter when when this disease is spreading exponentially. Super interesting. That's really helpful. And you touched a bit in the paper about sort of governance being a key part of uh, where Ontario sort of fell down, and in particular the changes that were that it had been made um, to how uh, long-term care homes are governed in Ontario. Can you just walk us through that a bit and how? you know, sort of governance translated into worse patient outcomes? Uh, We know that prior to the pandemic, uh, long-term care, public health, and acute care, uh, so hospital care, were more integrated in BC than than it was in Ontario. These services are all overseen by so-called regional health authorities, or RHAs, in BC. And early on in the pandemic, these RHAs sent those SWAT teams I mentioned earlier to support long-term care homes really quickly, even to the first outbreak recorded there. Um, conversely, in Ontario, public health units, they t- uh, tend to report to municipalities. Hospitals uh, largely have their own boards of directors and long-term care homes are overseen uh, by regional entities. And so there was a lot less integration uh, and kind of coordinated efforts than was observed um, in BC. So some long-term care homes in Ontario were able to receive support from acute care facilities if they had previous relationships with these facilities, but this wasn't the case universally. So for example, Unity Health Toronto, where one of our co-authors, Dr. Irfan Dalla, is vice president, oversees two hospitals, St. Joseph's and St. Michael's hospitals, and they were able to send staff to help quickly quell an outbreak at uh, the Providence long-term care home. There's really no direct evidence showing that one model is superior to another, but there's been some prior speculation and observations back in the 2003 SARS outbreak that suggests that the lack of integration between public health units and other health services may have contributed to worse outcomes during the outbreak. 
And finally, as you alluded to, uh, we know that prior to the pandemic, the health system in Ontario was undergoing some major changes. The regional health entities, so these so-called local health integration networks or LINs, were being integrated with several provincial agencies such as Health Quality Ontario into Ontario Health. And so during this process, leaders uh, in the organization had left, they weren't yet replaced. And uh, we know that effective health system governance is contingent upon effective leadership. That's really helpful. So, and maybe I'll just pick up on on that piece. Uh, you know, we are a politics podcast, so I have to ask a political question. And, you know, how much do you think you put at the feet of uh, what are sort of what the current conservative government in Ontario was responsible for? Um, and how much of this is, you know, long-term structural problems that um, had existed before uh, the Ford government took over in long-term care? Like, what, what's your sense of how much their mo- most recent changes around around governance contributed? Well, it's really a difficult thing to pinpoint how much is the result of problems in the system, uh, like you were saying, or structurally prior to the pandemic, and how much was due to responses and policy decisions from elected officials, since there really was a huge confluence of factors, and many of them are related to each other. But I do think, like you were saying, there are some factors that were very much within the purview of our elected officials. So for example, the delay in important staffing and infection prevention and control measures in Ontario. And we also know that um, our current government in Ontario was in a process of cutting funding to public health. This may have also contributed to worse outcomes. And there's a lot of evidence in the scientific and public health literature, which show that public health spending is indeed associated uh, with better population health outcomes. But to be fair, on the other hand, we know that you know there's been long-standing systemic issues in long-term care as well, such as understaffing within homes. And I think much of this um, kind of ends up coming down to the lack of standardization and regulation within the long-term care sector across the country. I, I think it really is a matter of a, you know a lot of different factors going into it. And maybe just picking up on that piece around standards, the federal government. Um made some commitments in its throne speech around the potential of developing standards for long-term care homes and also um, adding new provisions to the criminal code around around seniors abuse in the in these settings um, do you have a do you have optimism that this that this will help that one of the things lacking is sort of codified standards yeah I think one of the big things is that you know long-term care right now is is really excluded from the Canada Health Act and so a lot of these standards, um, exactly like you were saying, aren't really codified in these uh, federal uh, or provincial um, uh, regulations um, and, and legislation, I'm sorry. And so I think uh, it would really, really be helpful um, to have these standards, both in terms of minimum staffing hours, minimum direct care hours delivered to residents, even minimum funding um, provided to long-term care homes all be set at a federal standard level. Um, I think that would really go a long way. Um, so I'm optimistic, but you know, it's really um, it really does come down to the specifics of what ends up uh, making it into the legislation and regulations. Sure, right. Um, so maybe the last question I'll leave you with is: We're obviously in the middle of the second wave, and um, things may get worse before they get better. So if you were advising the Ford government right now, uh, what would you recommend that they do in long-term care that they're not doing right now? Yeah, it's sad, just like you were saying, that we're, we're well into the second wave now, and it would be great if we had implemented many of these measures and policies, you know, yesterday. Um, as of just today, there are currently 50 long-term care homes with active outbreaks, and there's been another 25 tragic um, deaths since mid-September. And what I would really do is urge 
the government to actually uh, read a letter that was actually sent on October, September 21st that hasn't received much media attention. And it comes from six associations overseeing long-term care in Ontario. They basically issued a statement saying that they're not prepared for the second wave and they offer a few recommendations and requests. And, you know, I think it's really important when the people who are running and provided and being provided care in long-term care homes tell you that they're not prepared or afraid of what is to come, um, then, you, then, you know, we really need to listen. And I think some of these things that I would say is, one, uh, there, there really needs to be an urgent um, addressing of the staffing shortage in long-term care, especially in regard to care aides and personal support workers. I think we should be looking to Quebec that's been training and hiring 10,000 uh, with their current initiatives to train and hire 10,000 new staff. And we need to be offering these staff full-time work, adequate benefits and paid sick leave um, to help them work at single sites. I think we also need to ensure that long-term care homes have access to sufficient testing for both symptomatic and asymptomatic residents in the case of high-risk exposures. So it's important that long-term care homes are actually prioritized for both testing capacity, but also for the new saliva-based tests that are coming to Canada. We know that these are less invasive and they're much easier to administer um, than the traditional nasal pharyngeal swabs. And um, I would also say that the government should really help homes procure and ensure that there's an adequate inventory of personal protective equipment. And finally, just to help homes ensure that they have standards in place for adequate infection prevention control plans. Um, and that, that you know, these kind of support teams, these so-called SWAT teams or, or similar from neighboring acute care facilities and public health units are on standby and ready to support any homes that do end up experiencing an outbreak. All right. Well, fingers crossed that that all happens and we make our way through this second wave uh, in better shape uh, than we started. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time. This was really helpful. Thanks so much for having me, Sam. Take care. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Special thanks to Michael Lou for sharing his thoughts. Join us next week as who knows what kind of week we'll be having. After all, it is 2020 and anything goes. Visit us at OntarioLoud.ca. Share and subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at OntarioLoud. And we're now on Instagram. Yes, that's right. Your favorite place for photos of babies, pets, and places you can't afford to go now has our podcast. Follow us at Ontario Loud Podcast. Ontario Loud is Chris Martin, Alexi White, Grima Talwar Kapoor, Sam Andrew, and myself, Alvin Tejo. Thanks to our support team, Aisha Anwar and Harman Mundi, and of course, our supporters on Patreon. See you next time. Stay safe. <laughs>